Welcome to Music History Monday for December 13th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Why We Shouldn't Bring Our Dogs to Work, A Cautionary Tale. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. As those who read via blog or listen via podcast to Music History Monday know, as often as not, I'll mention two, three, or even more date-related items before getting to the main attraction of a particular post. However, every now and then, one of those preliminary items will take on a life of its own and demand, rather curtly, I would add, to be the main attraction itself. That's precisely what has happened today. The original title for today's Music History Monday was An American in Paris. Here is that post's lead. We mark the premiere on December 13, 1928, 93 years ago today, of George Gershwin's orchestral work, An American in Paris. The premiere took place in Carnegie Hall, with Walter Damrosch conducting the New York Philharmonic. We will briefly deal with the creation and premiere of George Gershwin's An American in Paris before moving on to the canine-related item that has stolen today's show. Be assured, however, that we will return to an American in Paris and what was to be the meat and potatoes of today's post on Thursday, December 23rd. A Brooklynite in Paris. In the spring of 1926, George and Ira Gershwin's show, Lady Be Good, was scheduled to be performed in London following a brief tryout in Liverpool. George journeyed forth to ye merry old England for the performances. Between the Liverpool and London openings, respectively on March 29th and April 13th, 1926, he took a brief side trip to Paris, where he stayed with friends, Robert and Mabel Shermer, from about April 5th to the 10th. It was his first visit to that awesome ville, and he was properly bowled over by the city. As a parting gift to his hosts, the Shermers, Gershwin jotted down a bouncing, crackling melody he called Very Parisienne. On returning home to New York, New York, the city so big they had to name it twice, Gershwin began thinking about composing an orchestral work to commemorate his visit to Paris. That work, eventually to be entitled An American in Paris, was to feature Gershwin's very Parisienne melody as its opening theme. But we get ahead of ourselves. George and his brother Ira planned an extended three-month trip to Europe for the spring of 1928, during which George intended to actually compose his homage à Paris. Ira Gershwin described the trip this way. Quote, in the spring of 1928, George took his last trip to Europe, with Funny Face and Rosalie running in New York and OK in London, 
A vacation was in order, and my sister, my wife, and myself accompanied him. I did little other than see sights and drink beer, but George, despite all his social activities, his meetings with many of Europe's important composers, the hours spent with various interviewers and musical activities, still found time to work on American in Paris in the hotels we stayed at." Unquote. The bulk of this Gershwin family trip was spent in Paris, where George famously fell for the particular sound of Parisian taxi horns, which he claimed were Paris's most indigenous sound. An expedition to the automotive part shops on the Avenue de la Grande Armée allowed Gershman to select and purchase a number of taxi horns, which he brought back with him to the United States, there to be featured in An American in Paris. Gershwin in the Concert Hall. An American in Paris of 1928 was Gershwin's third concert work after Rhapsody in Blue of 1924 and the Concerto in F of 1926. Apropos of An American in Paris, Gershwin wrote, quote, My purpose here is to portray the impressions of an American visitor in Paris as he strolls about the city, listens to the various street noises, and absorbs the French atmosphere." Unquote. Following its premiere 93 years ago today, the critics were in agreement that An American in Paris was a better crafted work than Gershwin's Concerto in F. This is after the critics had declared the Concerto in F to be a better crafted work than the Rhapsody in Blue. However, after its Carnegie Hall premiere on a program featuring works by César Franck, Richard Wagner, and the Belgian composer Guillaume Lecou, a number of critics wondered whether An American in Paris belonged on a program with works by serious composers. The 30-year-old George Gershwin, who was still most insecure about his lack of compositional training, was stung by such assertions, and he responded rather defensively that, quote, It's not a Beethoven symphony, you know. It's a humorous piece, nothing solemn about it. It's not intended to draw tears. If it pleases symphony audiences as a light, jolly piece, a series of impressions musically expressed, it succeeds." Unquote. Gershwin's epic compositional insecurity, and with it the real reason why he traveled to Paris in the spring of 1926 and then again in the spring of 1928, will be revealed when we continue this story on December 23rd. Stay tuned. Onward to today's featured story. On December 13, 1969, 52 years ago today, Diana Ross sued the nightclub, the Latin Casino, for $27,500. Listen on. The Latin Casino. The Latin Casino was neither Latin nor a casino. Rather, it was a dinner theater in the southern New Jersey township of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, 11 miles south of where I grew up in Willingboro, New Jersey. Opened between 1960 and 1978, it was a posh 2,200-seat 
Las Vegas-styled supper club. Quote, it was considered one of the fanciest, hippest dinner nightclub experiences of that time, featuring dinner, drinks, and a showcase of top entertainment, and was called the showplace of the stars, unquote. All of this in Cherry Hill, New Jersey? Yes, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, writes Randy Alexander, quote, It was where Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin did a rare run of shows together. It was where James Brown, Richard Pryor, The Spinners, Natalie Cole, and Blue Magic recorded live albums, and where a then unknown Johnny Carson came to sit in on drums with the band in the lounge. It was the spot where Louis Prima found a wife, and where an onstage heart attack, or was it really a stroke, fatefully triggered the end of Jackie Wilson's life. Its talent roster was a who's who of big-name acts of the era. Sammy Davis Jr., Tony Bennett, Rodney Dangerfield, Jimmy Durante, The Temptations, Marlena Dietrich, James Brown, Peggy Lee, Aretha Franklin, Jerry Lewis, Liberace, Milton Berle, Tom Jones, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Bobby Darren, and Ray Charles are just a few of the more than 100 stars who played there." Unquote. According to the legendary New Jersey concert promoter Larry Magid, the Latin casino was, quote, a big fucking deal, unquote. In Cherry Hill, New Jersey? <laughs> yes, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. A principal reason for the club's success was the manner in which ownership treated the talent, like family. Jody Gerson, the daughter of owner Charles Charlie Gerson, recalled, quote, Remember, in those days, each act played seven days a week, two shows on Sunday. So my father really got to know them. His real talent was working with talent and making them feel comfortable. I didn't know that it wasn't normal to have Gladys Knight and the Pips at my home, or to party with Richard Pryor, or to see my mom playing tennis with Engelbert Humperdinck." Unquote. My family and I went to the Latin Casino on May 27, 1969, to see Don Rickles in celebration of my 15th birthday. As the marquee outside indicated during that run by Don Rickles, Diana Ross and the Supremes were to be the next act, opening on June 2, 1969, and running until June 15th. The 13-day run that wasn't. Diana Ross and the Supremes opened at the Latin Casino on June 2nd, 1969. Their 13-day run had been sold out for months in advance. The group traveled with a large entourage, and Diana Ross, born 1944, had a reputation at that time as being a boorish, temperamental, impossible-to-please diva. She was the prototype for the modern pop goddess, someone who made what were considered jaw-dropping demands on her staff, on concert promoters, on venue management, and on her fans. According to her biographer, J. Randy Taraborelli, quote, she would demand that people call her Miss Ross and that everyone diverted their eyes from her when she entered a room. She would insist her dressing rooms 
have the same color scheme as the color of her eyes. One year, she had 40 secretaries attending to her." Unquote. Clearly, the management team at the Latin Casino, typically adored by the talent, was going to be challenged by Miss Ross. It was a challenge they failed miserably. Sometime early in Diana Ross's run, a mouse was spotted somewhere in the club. An exterminator was brought in. That exterminator spread pellets of rat poison around the club. For our information, Diana Ross went nowhere without her two precious lapdogs, a couple of little white fluffballs named Tiffany and Little Bit. You know where this is going. In his biography entitled, Call Her Miss Ross, Ballantine Books, 1991, J. Randy Taraborelli describes what happened following Diana Ross's show on June 6, 1969, just five days into her run. Quote, As soon as Diana was off stage, she let out an ear-piercing scream. The audience, of course, heard her and immediately thought one of the girls, one of the Supremes, had been injured, especially when they heard an announcement asking for a doctor in the house. It was not one of the Supremes. Diana had found Tiffany and Little Bit staggering in the wings, shaking and vomiting. What's wrong with them? What's wrong? This is your fault, Joe Schaffner, Diana shouted at the group's road manager. You should have kept an eye on those damn animals. Ross called for an ambulance as one dog was dying in her arms. She threatened to sue the club. The Motown record executive, Barry Gordy, tried calming her down. Ross ordered her stuff packed and said she was leaving. It was the Latin Casino's co-owner, David Dushoff's turn to step in. Listen, Dushoff is quoted as saying, We had a very famous singer here recently whose mother died. And he continued, these, these are only dogs. The gig was done. The Supremes would have been paid $55,000. The Latin lost a lot more considering there were 10 shows, some 23,000 tickets that needed refunding, not to mention the bar receipts and food that had spoiled. And this was the last engagement of the season. Dushoff held a press conference. She left without calling the management, without saying goodbye, without our knowledge. She tore her contract to shreds, did everything to it in the whole world. There was nothing to do but close down." Unquote. It's a fact. Rat poison is as effective on small dogs as it is on rats and mice. On December 13, 1969, 52 years ago today, Diana Ross sued the Latin Casino for $27,500. The Latin Casino management countersued for breach of contract. The legal ugliness went on for years until the suits were settled out of court. Not surprisingly, Diana Ross and the Supremes never played the Latin Casino again. We can only hope as well that the lesson was learned and that she was subsequently more cautious about taking her dogs to work with her. Thank you.